Hi, everyone. I'm Sandy Lefebvre, and it's my honor to introduce the speaker for today, Jennifer Mayo. Many of you know Jennifer or may have seen her here at church, either greeting people or working with the children. And in fact, she's been our own integral part and beloved member of our community for the past three years. And many of you were here in October, or you may have watched the recording of Jennifer when she told her story here of her transgender transition. It was a courageous and moving experience and it, she told about the sorrows and the joys and the peace she won at a heavy cost. Really a powerful journey toward her embracing the fundamental belovedness of being a child of God. A bit about Jennifer. She's from a small town in Louisiana. She holds an electrical engineering degree, but also a master's in theology from the Dallas Theological Seminary. She's a former pastor. She pastored a church for five years in Kansas and then moved to Middle Tennessee to plant a church for five years in Murfreesboro. And for those of you who are on Facebook, you've seen that she's a great thinker, amazingly thoughtful, and she has some really wise and amazing posts that get us all of us thinking. So more than all of that, I'm so honored to call Jennifer a true friend. So when I thought about Jennifer, I thought of what would the words be that I would call her? And these are some of them. Kind, brilliant, loving, courageous, caring, fun, beautiful, compassionate, fiercely brave, and fiercely human. So please, everyone, join me in welcoming Jennifer Mayo. Now, she's going to make me cry even before the sermon starts. I've got to follow. Oh, where's the pulpit? Excuse me. Let me bring it down here. Just uh, one moment. Have y'all seen the pulpit downstairs? If you haven't, you need to do yourself a favor and walk down there sometimes. It is just gorgeous, handcrafted pulpit. I'm not saying we should use it. But it is just absolutely uh, a, work, a work of art. Um, I will say before I start this morning that as an act of protest and resistance, I am rooting for the New Orleans Saints today in the Super Bowl. If I would have had the courage, I would have worn my fleur-de-lis uh, Saint shirt uh, this morning, but, uh, but yeah. So we're going to start out with just a little sermon introduction video to get things kicked off. A cross on the rooftops of a million church buildings, on the flags of nations, and on a thousand logos. A cross can say, I will keep my promise. And a cross can say, I won't. A cross is found where two ways meet. And a cross can be your destination. A cross can say, you're in. And a cross can say, you're out. There are times when you're glad to see a cross. 
and there are times when you're not. A cross can stand for hatred, and a cross can signify love. For some, a cross is filled with superstition, and for others, it's just another religious symbol. A cross can be a warning sign, and a cross can be a sign of help. There are crosses that make you smile, crosses for sadness and loss, and crosses for remembrance. A cross can be so many different things. Awesome. The cross, it stands as the most recognizable symbol of the Christian faith, doesn't it? We hang crosses on top of our churches, on steeples. We wear crosses as jewelry around our necks. We print crosses and put them on t-shirts to wear, don't we? And we wear them in our ears as earrings. The cross literally defines our faith, so much so that our earliest followers, all the way back as far as we can tell to the second century, cross themselves with the sign of the cross. Indeed, the church of Jesus Christ either rises or falls on its theology of the cross. And the cross triggers this symbol that literally towers over us as a movement and as a faith. Triggers different people in different ways depending upon our past exposure to it, doesn't it? For some, this image, this symbol of the cross brings up feelings of incredible hope and blessing and love. Yet for others, that same symbol, that same image of the cross triggers feelings of fear, memories of hate, and brings up feelings of intense grief and pain. To be sure, the cross has been used as an instrument of blessing over the centuries, hasn't it? For under the banner of the cross, the hungry have been fed, the sick cared for, and orphans welcomed. That same cross, that same uh, symbol has also been used, what? As an instrument, not of blessing, but of cursing. Under the banner of the cross, entire nations have been conquered and colonized. Innocent people have been killed. And atrocities too great to even speak of have occurred, haven't they? I love the way James Cone put it in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He says this about the cross. The cross can both heal and hurt. It can be both empowering and liberating, but also enslaving and oppressive. So when we come to the subject of the cross this morning, it's sort of a mixed bag for us, isn't it? This symbol that just towers over our faith and defines it. Has anyone in here ever struggled with the meaning of the cross? Yes? Oh, good. I picked the right topic to speak on then. 
Has anyone wondered why Jesus had to die on that cross 2,000 years ago? Does it ever bother anyone that maybe in the back of your mind you just sort of question why is there this bloody, violent symbol at the very heart and center and core of our faith? And this morning, I want us to walk together as a church and examine the message and meaning of the cross. But before I begin, I want to get a little feedback from you. How many of you here, um, when you were deconstructing your faith and kind of begin to question things and begin to sort of reevaluate what you believe that... uh, Maybe your theology of the cross changed or what you believed about it uh, changed from what you grew up with and maybe were taught in church all of your life. How many of you that was true for you? Just put up your hand. So yeah, uh, quite a a few of us did that. And uh, so many of us, if you grew up in church, especially in the South, in an evangelical church, which is sort of the state religion of the South, isn't it? Uh, regardless of the denomination, regardless of the particular stream of Christianity uh, that we grew up in, we sort of grew up with a common belief, a common theme about the cross, didn't we? We were told, since we were little kids, this high in Sunday school, that what? God loves us. That God loves his creation, he loves humanity, and he loves people. But yet these people that God loved did wrong things. They did bad things and they sinned and rebelled against God. And because in God's heart he is love, God wants to forgive us. But because God is supposedly so holy and perfect and just, he just can't quite do it. So God has a huge problem. He wants to embrace his creation, but yet, because he's so perfect and holy, out of a law greater than himself, out of divine necessity, he can't. So as the story goes, God concocts a plan from eternity past. He sends his one and only son to the earth for what? The sole purpose of killing him in adulthood on the cross. And when Jesus dies on that cross, the Father lays the sin of the entire human race, past, present, and future, upon Jesus, and he kills him. And in the moment Jesus dies, divine justice is satisfied, an infinite debt is paid, and divine wrath is appeased. Or in the words of Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul, the cross is the asbestos suit that protects us against the white-hot wrath of God. Now there's a hopeful message, isn't it? (laughs) Now this is what we grew up commonly calling the good news, right? Or the gospel. Oh yeah. And you know, Not very good news, in my opinion. 
And this whole idea of what we formally call and theologically know as substitutionary atonement is embedded within our hymnody, is it not? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? We are a bloody faith. Died he for me, who caused his pain, for me, who him to death pursued. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And we could be here all day quoting hymn lyrics, right? That deal and in, in, in reinforce this whole doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And this theology, this ideology that, that the father out of necessity had to kill his son in order to love and accept his creation is so ingrained within us that oftentimes to question it is to question if we should even call ourselves Christian or not. And when we begin to question this within us, it can cause quite a bit of inner turmoil, can it not? You know, I was on uh, the Liturgist Facebook page a while back, and someone posted this very thing. They said they had begun to question and reevaluate this doctrine. And they said, made the comment, should I even bother to call myself a Christian anymore because I no longer believe this or am struggling or am questioning it? Should I even bother to call myself a Christian anymore? Good question, isn't it? Anyone been there? Should I even bother to call myself a Christian? Yes? <laughs> Maybe you're there this morning. Uh, should I even worry about the whole thing? It may come as a shock to our evangelical brothers and sisters and friends. And yes, I do call them friends and brothers and sisters. That there was scant witness to this doctrine of atonement in the earliest church fathers, it was really not until late in the game in history, till the 11th century, when a man named Anselm, Bishop of Canterbury, published a book called Why God Became Man and popularized the idea that the father, out of necessity to satisfy his holiness and perfection, had to kill his son. And it became all the rave in the medieval period and the reformers picked it up and equated it with the gospel. And to question it was to question the gospel and to put oneself outside of the faith and outside of orthodoxy. And to be sure that our earliest ancestors had several ideas of why Jesus died on the cross. But the father having to kill his own son out of bloodlust was most certainly not one of them.
Not only are there historical issues with this theology, there are some logical issues as well. For the son can obviously do something that the father cannot do. The son can be around regular, normal, average, everyday men and women and boys and girls when we screw up. The son seems to have no problem being around sinners, right? If you read the Gospels, he can tolerate us. But the father, he can't do that. And if one holds to a strict Trinitarian theology, co-equal, co-eternal, this presents an unhealthy division within the Godhead. Makes them at odds with one another. But the greatest damage that this doctrine does to our faith is it destroys who we are as believers. It turns the whole metaphor, the whole controlling image of my relationship with God from the bedroom to the courtroom. No longer am I the beloved bride of Christ being wooed into the bridal chamber to experience intimacy with the divine. That whole image shifts to what? A courtroom. I am on trial for my sins and shortcomings. God the Father is the judge. God the Son, Jesus, is my defense attorney. And I guess the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, is flying around the room trying to get me through the whole ordeal where I don't pass out. Is it any wonder, brothers and sisters, that so, so, so many in the church today struggle with our own belovedness and our own sense of who we are? No wonder. So if the father killing the son is not the message and meaning of the cross, what is? What can we say about what happened on that Good Friday? Why did Jesus die? I want us to look this morning at a scripture, one of the crucifixion accounts in uh, Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 27, we have it there. You can pull it up on your phones. I'm going to read it out of a real Bible, just out of habit. I'm old school here. Uh, I'm reading out of the New American Standard. I don't know what translation this is up here, but before I, we read this this morning, this crucifixion account, I would be remiss if I did not say that this account of the crucifixion has been used to harm many people throughout church history and over the centuries, especially our Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, much persecution and much, um, much wrongdoing uh, by the church and government. Uh, It's one of the ways that the cross, as James Cone said earlier, has been used to harm instead of heal. So we come to this passage with a sense of mystery, a sense of awe, but yet a sense of repentance for our own culpability in these areas. So with that said, let's start reading. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, 
They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began keeping watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And in the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He could not save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with these same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until about the ninth hour. What an intense and spiritually dark scene that we just read. How appropriate that physical darkness would accompany it. Imagine with me, if you will, Jesus at his last hour on that cross, breathing his last breath, pain literally overwhelming his body, the literal weight of the world hanging upon him, crushing his very soul. After a sleepless night, blood pouring out of him, a crown of thorns put on him, drifting in and out of consciousness, praying and wishing and begging for death, but yet clinging to life. And then the unthinkable happens. He hears the words of a mob gathered at the foot of his cross. He hears the voices of men and women mocking him and shaming him in his very last hour. Save yourself, O Son of God. If you are who you say you are, come down and save yourself. You said you were going to destroy that temple, huh? Well, it looks like the temple won this one, buddy. Interestingly enough, this was not the first time that Jesus heard these accusations and these words. A few years earlier in the wilderness, he heard the exact same thing, not from an angry mob, but from the accuser of souls himself. And the accuser comes to him and says what? If, if you are the son of God, cast yourself down from this temple and angels will rescue you. If you are the beloved son of God, turn these stones into bread and at least feed yourself. It's the exact same temptation that you and I face every day of our lives. Prove yourself, 
Hustle for your worth. Doubt who God says you are. Doubt your belovedness. Only in this moment, on this cross, one thing was different than in the wilderness. Angels did not come to minister to Jesus. But as he lay dying and hanging on that cross, he does what? He thinks the unthinkable. Surely his mind went back to his baptism when the father spoke to him. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And he looks at this mob and he hears the voices and he remembers the voice of the accuser. Loudly speaking to him, he says, no, no, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Insults hurled, heads wagged. This is a scene of humanity at its very lowest point, is it not? This is a scene of mob violence and rule. It's a scene of human mockery and scapegoating, not one of divine wrath and justice. It's a scene of humanity killing pure divine love out of a spirit of jealousy, not God killing God out of necessity or bloodlust. In order to get that theory of the atonement out of this passage, you have to read a preconceived ideology and theology into it, what we call eisegesis. It does not, under any uh, stretch of the imagination, arise naturally out of the text, what we call exegesis. And it's in this dark and heavy and intense scene that just literally takes our breath away. That we see some insights into the meaning and message of the cross. And the first thing that just sort of strikes me here is this. Is that Jesus dies with us, not instead of us. We participate with him. Jesus dies with us, not instead of us. We participate in his death. The scripture we just read says that Jesus was crucified between two people representing all of humanity. The good, the bad, the repentant, the unrepentant. His arms outstretched in love, mercy, and forgiveness equally to both. And as I reflect upon this passage, I think, wow, wow, that's the way it's always been with God, hasn't it? That's the way it's always been. God crucified, God suffering in the midst of, not instead of humanity. Friends, the cross teaches us that God suffers with us, not instead of us. And the presence of God is never, ever, ever more acutely there than in the midst of human tragedy and suffering. Suffering with us, in us, and through us. We are indeed called to suffer and die, aren't we? And Jesus said as much, if any man wishes to come after me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. In this invitation, this call to co-crucifixion with Christ, to death, 
is not just an invitation to a morbid death. It's actually an invitation to participate in the very life and very heart of God herself. It's an invitation to participate in what we call the Paschal Cycle. A recurring, repeating cycle of birth, of preparation, of life, death, resurrection, ascension, and new life. It's an invitation and a call to active participation in the very heart of God himself. And I believe, at least, it's the purest essence of what it means to be called Christian. The Apostle Paul picked up on this theme in Philippians 3. He was reflecting upon his own life in Philippians. He was talking about all his successes, all of his training, all of his degrees, everything that he had given to him. And as he reflected upon his past experiences, he said, you know what? All of that is rubbish. Literally all of that is dung. You want a Greek word? Literally means fecal matter. He says, when I look at my past, when I look at everything that I accomplish, it is literally dung. It is literally excrement compared to something. And the something compared to is the surpassing value of knowing, of knowing, he says, of knowing Christ Jesus, whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says this about knowing Christ. He says, oh, to know him, to know him in the power of his resurrection, but also in the, what does he say? The fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. The word fellowship, koinonia, is very interesting. It means that there can be potentially such an intimacy, such a fellowship, such a sharing going on between two people that the two are almost indistinguishable. Imagine that. Humanity and divinity sharing an experience where the two aren't so easily teased apart and separated. That's why Paul could say later on that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Sharing, participation, intimacy. And as I think about that, that, ha- that is not how we have typically framed Christianity, is it? At least in the realm of the church, most of us are from. We have framed Christianity how? All about what? Believing, right? Believing a set of facts or doctrines. Uh, either what gets you in the front door or conversely what gets ki- you kicked out of the back door is uh, whether or not you believe a bunch of stuff, right? Now, depending upon the group or the denomination or stream of Christianity, those beliefs change. Uh, Facts about the person of Christ, facts about the church, things about baptism, uh, uh, communion, whatever it is, but it's all about believing. And we have reduced this beautiful treasure 
into a uh, mental ascent to creeds and doctrines rather than a dynamic participation in the life, ministry, and death of the man, Jesus Christ. Richard Rohr put it this way. He said this, We have worshipped Jesus instead of following him on his same path. We've made Jesus into a mere religion instead of a journey toward union with God and everything else. And this shift has made us, listen at this, into a religion of believing instead of a religion of transformation. A religion of believing instead of a religion of transformation, a religion of creeds, a religion of doctrine instead of a religion of participation, fellowship, koinonia, and transformation. And when we frame Christianity in those terms, friends, I just need to confess to you this morning that I don't even know what it means to be Christian anymore, at least in those terms. You see, I don't believe Christianity is so much failed yet is that it hasn't really been tried much in 2,000 years. In this emphasis of belief, of doctrine, of creeds, whatever you want to call it, over transformation and participation in the Paschal cycle has led to disastrous results in our own lives and in the church. I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was sitting in a class, and uh, our assignment, we were studying the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so our assignment was to uh, come up with a fresh translation of this parable out of the Greek text and then to write a 20-page paper on it. It was thrilling, let me tell you. (laughs) And so some of my classmates who were a little more practical-minded about the assignment decided to do this. They said, we're going to get real here. Uh, They got one of them, uh, put him in old raggedy clothes, put some fake blood on him and made him look like he had been beaten and put him right outside of a parking lot where many students park and walk to class. And so he just laid there on the sidewalk, groaning and moaning. And sure enough, all of these students on their way to class to translate the parable of the Good Samaritan from Greek to English and write a 20-page exegetical paper on it, walked around to the right, walked around to the left, drove by, not one, he sat there for over an hour, and friends, not one person stopped to help him. That is what happens when Christianity disintegrates into a system of belief and doctrine. It's the same thing that happened in the 1960s that allowed a man to go in Mississippi and burn a cross in front of another man's yard on Saturday night and then on Sunday morning go into church and sing about the old rugged cross on Sunday morning and absolutely feel no guilt, no tension, or no conflict whatsoever in his soul. 
And it's the exact same thing that allows me, I'm not letting myself off the hook here, friends, that allows me to drive by on my way to church every Sunday, three homeless people right within a block of this church. Yet I'm coming in here to try to meet God and connect with God when the very icons of the divine are right out there waiting for me, radiating forth and bursting forth the presence of divinity. If you forget everything I say today, don't forget this. That the gospel call is not primarily a call to believe a bunch of stuff. The gospel call, the good news, is not a call to believe. It's a call to participate. An invitation to divine life itself. So I want to get a little practical here. I'm a very practical person. Um, I want to encourage us and challenge us this morning. And I won't say start doing it because we already are doing it. But how shall I say this? Uh, Kick it up a notch in the words of Emerald or something. (laughs) Kick up a notch doing what Jesus did, doing the stuff that Jesus did. Kick up a notch advocating for people in the margins. Kick up a notch caring for the poor, the weak, and the disenfranchised. Kick up a notch speaking truth to power. And you know what happens when you start doing those things? You will get put on a cross. It just comes with the territory. And more than likely, it will be the church putting you there, as this church has found out. So Jesus dies with us, not instead of us. We participate. There's a second aspect I want for us to see here this morning, and it's this. Jesus dies on that cross as an act of resistance, not as an act of appeasement. Jesus dies on the cross that Good Friday is an act of resisting earthly powers, not appeasing an angry God in the sky. When he was lifted up and he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. When he was lifted up on that Good Friday, he did so proclaiming a kingdom that was diametrically opposite the kingdom of the world that was opposite the kingdom of Caesar that put him there. He advocated a kingdom for the poor in spirit, not the rich in wealth. A kingdom where mourners are comforted. A kingdom where the gentle inherit the earth. A kingdom where the merciful receive mercy and a kingdom where the pure in heart finally get what they're seeking to see God herself. You see, friends, it was man who put him there, not God who put him there. And they're hanging on that cross with darkness enveloping the land, an angry mob mocking him at his feet. Jesus breathes his last, but before he breathes his last and goes out, he had one final thing to do, one final act. The Bible says, as he breathed his last and gave up his spirit, what happened? 
the veil of the temple literally ripped in half. This ultimate symbol of inherent separation between the divine and humanity was ripped in half. This partition, this curtain, this wall, whatever you want to call it, that only once a year. And then under the most regulated and intensely strict circumstances, could one special person that was specially trained and credentialed enter into was done away with. You see, friends, on that cross, one last sermon was preached, and it was this. You have never, ever, ever been separated from God. You have never, ever, ever been or ever, ever will be separated from God. There is no curtain, there is no veil, there is no wall, and there is no partition. Jesus was not on that cross making atonement for sin. He was demonstrating that no atonement was necessary in the first place. He was not up on that cross paying some divine debt. He was saying, you owe me absolutely nothing. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was not on that cross satisfying some sense of divine wrath. He was showing just how far that divine love would actually go. The word of the cross is this, not father, can you finally love and forgive them now? But to us as creation people, do you finally believe that you are really loved now? The message of the cross, the word of the cross, is that divinity is always infused in the midst of human suffering, that God suffers in, with, and through us, and by participating in that suffering, that pastoral cycle, we enter into the very life and heart of the divine. It was a day that would forever change the course of Western civilization and alter the course and direction of the church forever. The day I'm speaking of is October 27th, the year 312. And the once great Roman Empire was a fraction of its former self, divided between east and west, being contested by two rival emperors, Maxentius in the west and Constantine in the east. And they meet on this fateful day outside of Rome on the banks of the Tiber River, for battle. And Constantine's army before this battle is greatly outnumbered. He was going to lose. But supposedly, here is what happens that would forever change the direction of this thing we call the Church of Jesus Christ. Supposedly, before this battle, Constantine sees a vision in the sky of a cross. And he sees this vision of a cross in the sky, this pagan emperor does, with the letters key, row, the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek. And he supposedly hears a voice coming from the heavens saying, with this sign, conquer. And Constantine is so moved by this vision and this voice about the cross, he tells his troops before the battle Take this cross with the key row and paint it on your shields. 
And Constantine goes on to win the battle and routs the army of Maxentius. And his body is, uh, Maxentius's body is found floating in the Tiber River. And in true Christian fashion, Constantine dismembers his body and beheads him and carries his head through the streets of Rome as a symbol of victory. And later his head was taken around the empire. And that was either the best day for the church or its worst day, depending upon who you talk to. And the rest is history. Constantine unites the empire, moves the capital east to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, issues a year later the Edict of Milan, recognizing Christianity and a movement this founder was once crucified for, for opposing an empire now becomes the chaplains of that very empire. With this sign, conquer. And the church has been conquering, colonizing, and converting ever since, haven't we? Friends, I have absolutely no interest in a conquering, converting, and colonizing cross I have absolutely no need for a cross of atonement, a cross of appeasement, a cross to placate and satisfy divine wrath. I have no need for that kind of cross. But I am very interested in, and I am very attracted to, a cross of beauty. A cross that lovingly woos me, A cross that invites me to die so that I might live a true life. A cross that invites me to live a life of holy resistance and advocacy for others. And a cross that by its very nature and very existence literally rips and destroys all walls and veils of separation between God and humanity. And a cross that declares... God's amazing and inherent love and union with his beloved. That's an amazing cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, the cross. What an abused and maligned symbol. It has caused so much pain and so much hurt. It can be empowering and liberating, but has enslaved and oppressed and destroyed so, so, so many. Many of us here are carrying crosses this morning. We're carrying crosses that are weighing down our souls. The divine, the creator of the universe is right there with you on that cross suffering with you, in you, and through you. Let our response be, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer.
Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, as our ushers come forward, um, again, thank you for being here today. We know that you have many, many choices on a Sunday morning. For those online, we appreciate you as well. There are many ways that you can give. Uh, one of the things that's been so great over the last few months is seeing your new faces become familiar faces as our family grows. Uh, there are many things that we're hoping to do this year. Uh, we just set our budget for the year, which uh, is a huge relief to those of us in leadership. And we would just ask that you consider joining us uh, with what we're doing. The, the, the community that we have of telling people you're not separated, that you are beloved, without condition. There's, there's not a lot of places out there that are spreading that message right now. So please consider joining us. We would greatly appreciate your support and uh, be blessed as you give. Thank you. Thank you.